the Germans see this as the end of their golden age. And I think that there is quite a lot at stake. Whoever is going to replace her is going to probably uphold the status quo. But that's what is kind of at stake here. And that's what makes this election so important. Under Merkel, Germany has really become a political and economic powerhouse to the point where there's requests now for more German leadership. This is Sarah and Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. On today's episode, we're going to talk about Congress's very busy week. We're going to talk about the German elections that took place over the weekend. And if you haven't already listened to our Friday episode, Five Things You Need to Know About Parliamentary Systems, it will give you a great base of knowledge going into this main conversation today. And then, of course, finally, outside of politics, we're going to talk about a great article in Ring Theory. So stay tuned for that. Speaking of five things you need to know, we have another one of those episodes that might be valuable as you come into today's episode. Before we talk about Congress's busy week, which includes the debt ceiling and government funding, you might want to go back and check out five things you need to know about the federal budget process. The link will be in the show notes and in this amazing playlist that Sarah put together, Pantsuit Politics 101 on Spotify. We've built it out so that when you're recommending the show to people, you will have a good starting place for them. So we're going to continue to work on these playlists so that everybody can hear some of our greatest hits. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I hope you guys don't mind to time travel back with me about a year. I was in the process of resigning myself to the idea that part of middle age for me might mean that my hair was going to slowly turn to straw and fall out of my head. Drama aside, we all know that your hair and skin can sway your mood and impact your day in ways you can't underestimate. I have tried other custom beauty products and just found that they kind of made my hair worse. But ever since I switched to a custom hair routine with pros, I've noticed so many benefits. Healthier hair, yes, but beyond that too. I feel like I don't have to blow dry my hair anymore in order for it to look good. Because it's stronger, fuller, softer, and just looks nicer. Pros is made for people, not hair and skin types. Personalization is rooted in everything they do, from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. My custom shampoo and conditioner, for example, were formulated to improve the smoothness and volume of my hair. And I really see after months of using my custom formula and tweaking it with the review and refine tool for this season, that I have nice looking hair all year long. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash pantsuit. So 
go get your free consultation, then 50% off at pros.com slash pantsuit. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash pantsuit. Traditionally, financial planning advice is either only for those who are already wealthy or salespeople calling themselves financial advisors who say they'll give you free financial advice, but really just sell products to earn commissions. Fearless Finance takes a dramatic departure from either of those traditional models. Their entire business is built on making financial advice accessible and affordable because we know that financial literacy, stress reduction, and financial security are critical to overall well-being. I'm a little bit obsessed with Elizabeth, our Fearless Finance Advisor. I've had an array of advisors in the past who answered questions like, should we be spending less on this with evasive answers like, it depends on your priorities. Not Elizabeth. She answers with actually helpful guidelines. You're spending more than the average family of five, or I'd like to see this increase by 6%. Uh, thank you. This is Fearless Finance's mission, to make advice affordable and accessible. You meet with your planner virtually and they charge you by the hour. You only pay for the time you use down to a quarter hour. Their planners meet with you where you are on your financial journey, no judgment. Visit fearlessfinance.com today. You can chat with a planner for free to make sure it's a good fit and you'll get $50 off your first planning meeting when you use the code pantsuit. That's fearlessfinance.com and use code pantsuit for $50 off your first planning meeting. Congress has a very busy and, I would argue, stressful week in front of them. Everything is coming to a head all at once. I can't decide if that is by design or by accident. But either way, we have the bipartisan infrastructure funding bill, the reconciliation package, government funding, and debt ceiling all coming to a head this week. So first up, the bipartisan infrastructure funding is up for a vote in the House. Speaker Pelosi had previously pledged to the moderates within the Democratic caucus that she would put that up for a vote by today, but she has now moved the vote back until Thursday. And the moderates want this to pass before they'll support the reconciliation package in that's currently before the Senate. But in the Senate, <laughs> the moderates are holding up the reconciliation package, specifically Kristen Sinema from Arizona and Joe Manchin from West Virginia. So they have not signed on to the reconciliation package that includes all the progressive priorities. So let's just say, let's just say, because I don't I don't like to doubt people. I really don't like to doubt Nancy Pelosi. So let's just say that they get to yes from Cinema and Mansion by Thursday on the reconciliation package. That frees up the progressives to vote for the bipartisan infrastructure funding in the House, but (laughs) we still have government funding that runs out on Thursday as well as a debt ceiling that needs to be raised. It's a scene. In summary, it's a scene. I think you did a nice job summarizing the scene. Thank you. I think we should tackle these priorities from dumbest to hardest. (laughs) (laughs) To me, the fact that we are sweating at all about the debt ceiling is indicative of how unserious many of our legislators are. The fact that Republicans will not consent to do this quickly so that everyone in the economy can take a deep breath about this piece is nonsense. I emailed 
Mitch McConnell and Rand Paul this morning. Nice. I did that at great personal sacrifice because if you've ever emailed Rand Paul, you're going to get on a thousand bizarro email so lists. I have spent all year unsubscribing from those and have just re-upped. I mean, seconds later, I had some Dang. ridiculous messages in my inbox. But I say that not to discourage you because I say it instead to underscore the importance, I think, of recognizing here we are in this really precarious time. The idea that the United States would default is bananas. And just it it infuriates me that Republicans aren't even trying to negotiate anything here. They're mm-hmm. just saying, no, mm-hmm. we won't no. be part of this. Well, let's do a little review. Just for sanity's sake. Okay, the debt ceiling. When we run a deficit, which we've been running for a while, the Treasury makes up the difference by selling bonds. But they are limited by a ceiling, a debt ceiling, by how much of that debt they can take on. And Congress has to raise that ceiling. Otherwise, we default on our debt, which is bad. Just, I don't know how to say it any other way. It's very bad. And so this used to be sort of rote. Nobody paid attention to it. It's become a bargaining chip. It's been used to reduce spending by Republicans. Of course, they increased the deficit tremendously under the Trump administration. And so now they're saying, well, we don't, we're not going to do it this time. They want the Democrats to do it on their own. There's only a smallish problem process-wise with this line in the sand with no seeming requirements attached to it, which is for the Democrats to do it on their own, they would have to do it in the reconciliation bill, which is what we were just talking about earlier in this segment. But a couple things. First, there's no indication that that would fit within the reconciliation bill. You know, we've been talking about the Senate parliamentarian quite a bit. She gets to decide what is actually related to taxing and spending. Recently, she came out and said the parts of the reconciliation bill that affected immigration could not stay because they didn't have to do with taxing and spending. You know what else doesn't have to do with taxing and spending? Raising the debt ceiling. So there's a chance that she would say it can't go in a reconciliation bill, period. And even to get to the point where she'd answer that question takes weeks. They'd have to go back to committee, redo the budget bill, redo the reconcili- this entire reconciliation package, and we don't have weeks because we're going to de- default on our debt before then. We don't know exactly what date it is on which we'll default on our debt because a lot of moving parts go into when when can Treasury not meet those obligations anymore. Uh, but it looks like three to six weeks, according to the latest study that I've seen on this from a bipartisan policy center. So part of what Mitch McConnell is saying is, oh, it's laughable that Democrats would say there's not enough time to do this. They don't even know what the date is. Well, nobody knows what the date is. But we do know that the date is approaching And the date is approaching not in 2022. It's in the next Mm -hmm. couple of weeks, if not months. So something needs to happen here. And the bigger thing and what's so cynical about McConnell's statements on this is he knows that it's not even about getting to that X date. It is about all of the uncertainty created in the meantime. So much Mm -hmm. of our economy floats on how everybody's feeling about the economy and how everybody's feeling about... Especially right now. Yes, how how everyone's feeling about how the economy might be a couple of months, weeks down the road. And so messing with everyone's confidence in this way is a really big problem. Well, and it's hypocritical, again, because they raise the debt ceiling While the Trump administration was creating huge deficits, the Democrats joined in on that. And now they're like, well, we don't want to. And you do it. I mean, not that we're all surprised by the cynical, hypocritical nature of Mitch McConnell's endgame, but there it is. Okay, so that's the the dumbest one. (laughs) 
Where, where would you like to go to next of these four moving parts? Well, I think government funding is the next in terms of just no brainer. This just needs mm-hmm. to happen again because the precariousness of the economy, why this would even be in question is a mystery to me. Well, and the government spending has cleared the House. It seems like the main debate is around the debt ceiling. So hopefully the government spending portion will make it through the Senate, although I don't know attached to what, because we still have to clear the reconciliation package. The bipartisan infrastructure funding has already passed through the Senate. So the House is just waiting, particularly the House progressives are waiting for the all clear to support the moderate-led infrastructure package. And so this is, now we're back to everybody's favorites, Kristen Cinnamon and Joe Manchin. And, I, you know, look, I've read a lot of reporting that said the Biden administration realizes now they asked for too much and too big of a package. And they, listen, it makes sense, right? They were flying high. They had a lot of political capital. Things were going their way. But, you know, nothing is permanent in politics. And when the political reality changed on the ground, then they realized maybe I think their uh, eyes got ahead of their stomach. My issue with the size of this package isn't even really the size of the package or the political reality. You and I were bouncing back and forth on Friday through text messages about um, a podcast that we were listening to about the economy. And what I really appreciated in this conversation, which we'll link in the show notes, was a discussion of what does it mean to spend too much money when Mm -hmm. the government creates the money? And it helped me to hear someone just say in in words, in a straightforward way, it is not about how much money. It is about what can realistically be done with that money. And to me, the reason to go forward on the bipartisan infrastructure package, the hard package, and scale back a bit on the soft infrastructure or the reconciliation package is when you're thinking about what can realistically be done. Even if the Biden administration's approval rating was even higher than when they started talking about this, what's happening on the ground is a labor shortage. And to me, that takes a moment where we need to say, okay, what should we target this reconciliation package toward? And that seems to be the care economy to me, because if there's something holding besides immigration, if there's something holding people back from labor, it is care. Right. Mm -hmm. But let's focus in on that and then figure out what else we can do down the road. Not because I'm worried about how much money gets spent overall. I do believe that an investment in care will pay off in terms of greater revenue and an increased economy overall. So I just think it's not even political. It's just like, realistically, what do we need to do step by step here? Well, and I think we see that reality in the COVID funding. You see big amounts of government money going out and not being spent, like with tenant assistant and landlord relief. The money isn't in the issue. I know that's hard going back to, you know, our previous conversation <laughs> from the Reagan era that we've been trained for decades to think Deficit spending is bad. It leads to inflation. And what we've seen over decades is that that's just not true. The predictions are not coming true. We have a lot more capacity to spend, and by we, I mean the federal government, to put the money out into the world. But do we have some place for the money to go, right? That's really the issue. And I think we did see that with COVID relief, that there was a lot of money going out. And and, and it's like, it's a little bit of a chicken and an egg problem, right? Well, do we not have any place for the money to go? Because 
we've been cutting the federal government and cutting budgets and cutting staffing for decades? Or is it because this was always true? You know what I'm saying? Like, did it did the narrative create the problem? If we let the federal government continue to grow sort of along with our population at the pace it was in the 60s and 70s, well, maybe we wouldn't be in the situation where we've got more money than than we have the capacity to put in place to actually put into action. I think there's probably some truth to that. I think that we also, you know, I'm a person who greatly values the tension between states and the federal government. And I recognize that builds in inefficiency because a lot of that COVID relief money was dependent not on federal workers, but state workers to distribute Mm -hmm. it correctly or state programs to be in good shape to know where to send the money and, and how it could be used well. And I'm not clear enough yet on the details of this reconciliation package to understand exactly what channels the money would flow through and whose responsibility it would be to take appropriations and turn them into programs that actually serve people. But I do, following COVID relief, have questions about how much that can be done and on what timetable. And I think that those are legitimate questions. That's why I'm never mad at Mansion and Cinema, especially when I read about Cinema's spreadsheet that she takes to all these meetings. I was like, I'm here for that. <laughs> I guarantee you I would have a spreadsheet if I were in Congress, too. I think it's really important to ask hard questions about this and make sure that the money that's going to be spent has a good purpose. I don't automatically think, look, yeah, let's big bold. Let's just spend all this money and, and go for it. I do think there are some good plans that have been outlined here. I would just like to see a compromise. You know, I was listening to a podcast out of British Columbia about the Canadian snap elections and the election expert that they had on that podcast said, you know, the mandate from voters is pretty clear. It is that they want overall a progressive direction and they expect the progressive parties to cooperate with each other and compromise. And I thought, Man, that is like such a good roadmap for the United States right now, because these programs that they're talking about are very, very popular, even among people who would never call themselves Democrats. And I think the nation expects an overall progressive direction around things like infrastructure, college, child care, elder care, and they want the progressive coalitions among, you know, in the Democratic Party to cooperate with each other and have some compromise. Well, I think what we're looking at is a scaled-down version of the soft infrastructure package. Cinema and Mansion have made clear they're not going to agree to the $3.4 trillion. So I think, you know, any any path forward involves some scaling back. I do think that in order to come out of this narrative that we've been in for so many years that, you know, cuts, cuts, cuts is how we keep the federal government efficient and and functioning properly, there might be a little bit of outpacing. There might be a little bit of spending more than we can put into action at first because that's just how you're going to have to grow it. That's how you're going to have to build up staffing, how you're going to just, and again, just change the political narrative to say like, no, we can do this. It will be okay. Um, We don't have to be overly consumed with deficit spending. We've seen that over the past several decades, and now it's time to build up a government that can meet the needs of our incredibly big and incredibly diverse populace. And so I hope that's the priority over this week. I think that some compromise between progressives and moderates is not only required, but probably called for. I don't make it my business to ever doubt being capabilities of Nancy Pelosi. 
That's just a bad bet in my personal opinion. I don't bet against her when it comes to getting people in line in order to vote for big, big things. And so I hope they get it done. Next up, we're going to talk about this weekend's elections in Germany with Allie Kane. Allie is currently the program coordinator at the Cordoza Law Institute in Holocaust and Human Rights, an atrocity prevention think tank in New York City. As part of her job, she monitors human rights and policy developments in Europe. She just finished her MA in European Studies from Columbia University, and her MA thesis analyzed the German far-rights political strategy during the pandemic. And we were so excited to have her on the show to talk with us about this really, really important election. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. We use our phones for everything at this point, but did you know that you can use it for some sexy me time? Don't worry, your fantasies are safe with Dipsy. Just don't forget to use your headphones. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, sexy audio stories designed by women for women. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with vampires, Greek gods, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. They also have soothing sleep stories, wellness sessions, and sexy written stories to read. Let Dipsy be your go-to place to spice up your me time. Explore your fantasies, relax and unwind, or even heat things up with a partner. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. My son Oliver is almost two. The desire for more hours in the day has never been more real for me in my life. An extra hour for reading, for sleeping, for working, for playing, I could use any of it. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to then make it a priority. Therapy can help you figure that out, help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. Just last week, my mom actually asked me about my experience with BetterHelp after hearing ads like this one for it. And I'm telling you what I told her. BetterHelp was the perfect solution for me in a time of my life when I had too many plates to juggle, but still very much needed to talk to someone about the experience of keeping all those plates in the air. BetterHelp made therapy easy and accessible right when those were qualities I needed most. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. You just fill out a very brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and then you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit.
Okay, so Allie talked us through the state of German politics, and depending on your level of news consumption, you may have seen some stories recently about the end of Angela Merkel's time as Chancellor of Germany. She has served in that role since 2005, so her decision to cede power is a huge one for the country. In fact, this is the first time in modern history that an incumbent chancellor has ceded their power. Under Merkel's leadership, Germany has become a hugely impactful player within the European Union. So it's a really big deal, not just for Germany, but for the entire continent and the globe, as Ali pointed out to us. The European opinions are totally different from the German opinions. The Germans see this as the end of their golden age. A lot of, I think like it was like 50% of Germans said that this was like the end of the golden age for them. And I think that there is quite a lot at stake Whoever is going to become the next chancellor, it's not going to completely rock Germany. It's not like it is in the U.S. where there's so much at stake with every single election. Whoever is going to replace her is going to probably uphold the status quo. But that's what is kind of at stake here. And that's what makes this election so important. Under Merkel, Germany has really become a political and economic powerhouse to the point where there's requests now for more German leadership, which is what the Europeans uh, were saying in this poll that was revealed today. I think it was across like 12 different European countries most of the respondents said that they trust Germany entirely when it comes to economic decisions and human rights. So there's a very big demand right now for Germany to kind of step up its leadership, not only in economic decisions and human rights, but when it comes to defense, when it comes to foreign policy in terms of taking a more hawkish approach towards China and Russia, and when it comes to tech and trade. One of the reasons that Germany has become such a power player is because of Merkel and the stability Mm -hmm. that Merkel brought to leading Germany. She has been on the international stage, a really trusted partner for a number of international leaders and just a steady hand in conversations. And so her legacy is, is a powerful one. She's very into incrementalism. She's not like a radical shifter. So that's kind of what the status quo has been. And I think that's what her legacy will be. I think she'll be remembered as someone who was very even-minded, someone that really put their values into practice and put her values into into policy. She grew up the daughter of a, I think he was um, a Lutheran pastor in East Germany. And you can kind of see those values being reflected in a lot of her policies, especially around migration. Um, She's someone that prioritizes, you know, doesn't want Germany to make decisions on its own. She wants Germany to work with other countries. She values international organizations and whatnot. So I think, you know, that will be her legacy as well as making Germany into a country that is stable, is prosperous and sees itself as a global actor. Uh, Listen, I could spend an entire show on Angela Merkel's legacy because I think she's fascinating. But the country is in the process of moving on to its next chapter. So like we said at the top of the show on Friday's episode, we talked about how parliamentary systems work. So it won't surprise you to learn that Germany has quite a few major political parties, more than we do. So going into that election this weekend, there were seven major political parties vying for power. So there's seven main political parties in Germany. And I say main political parties because these are the parties that have been able to pass the 5% threshold needed to enter the Bundestag, which is the parliament. So each part, there's a lot of smaller parties too, but they are unable to pass this threshold to have representation in the Bundestag. So there's seven main parties. I'll start kind of on the center right. So there's the Christian Democratic Union, which is Merkel's party. It's a very centrist party. If I was to equate it to a political figure in the U.S. I would say it's probably like the Mitt Romney's and like the moderate 
Republicans of the day. They're very centrist when it comes to social policies, obviously a little bit more progressive because they're European. So a little bit more socially liberal, but not super socially liberal. And they're very focused on the economy. Then you have the Social Democrats, who are the oldest political party in Germany. And they, I would say, are more of our moderate democratic wing, but of course, a little bit more progressive because they're European. So they're focused on you know gender equality, wages, pensions, whatnot. Then you have the Greens, which is probably the most interesting party to emerge as a contender in this race to replace Merkel. The Greens started off um, during the Cold War as this like anti-nuclear, anti-war, very pro-environment party, and it was seen as being quite radical. And it's really transformed itself to be this alternative to the Social Democrats, a more progressive alternative to the Social Democrats. And they've really broadened their their platform to be, you know, one of the most pro-European, pro-US, um, and, you know, pro-climate change, of course, parties. Then you have the Free Democratic Party, which is a smaller party that tends to be invited to form coalition governments. And it's, I would say, the like, compared to the U.S. fiscal conservatives, like very focused on the economy, very focused on business. Then you have the two extreme parties, which is what, you know, we can, I could have a whole separate episode with you guys about this, but there is the left, which is the party that has kind of formed itself out of the communist party in former East Germany. So they're very, very left. They want to, for example, they want Germany to leave NATO. They're kind of friendly towards Russia. They're very, very to the left. And then you have the far right which is a party that I've studied in depth through my master's work at Columbia. The far right is called the Alternative for Germany Party. And it actually became the third largest party in the Bundestag after the 2017 election. So it started off as this very Eurosceptic. We don't want to provide bailouts to the southern states, you know, during the different financial crises type of party. And then when the refugee crisis hit, it became the leading voice of xenophobia and government criticism in Germany. And they were the third largest party after the 2017 election, which was crazy in a country like Germany, which has this, you know, history with far right extremism. Their support has decreased a little bit, not a lot, which is what I think has been most shocking about this election is that they're not really the media is not covering the AFD that much. And I've been having discussions with my friends as to is it because they are just not trying to give it attention or are they really not concerned about it because it's only polling at 11 percent? And it's kind of up in the air as to like why it's not being covered that much. I think it's a mistake that it's not being covered that much. I think that the fact that they're still polling at 11% is still problematic, but that's my own opinion. And then the last political party is the Christian uh, Social Union, which is the Christian Democratic Union's uh, sister party in Bavaria, which is Germany's largest state. So they tend to rule together and have the same policies pretty much. When you have seven parties, it enables you to have like a really refreshingly substantive conversation about the issues going on in elections. And we ask Allie to tell us a little bit about the issues that are surfacing here. What's at stake in this upcoming election? If you look at polls, there's a few different issues that are at the top right now of voters' concerns. The first is climate change. The second is pensions. Pensions are a big issue in Germany because of its aging population. So there's lots of discussions right now about the pension age, whether to raise it, um, how much funding should go towards pensions and whatnot. Rent and like living conditions is the third biggest issue um, because it's very hard to find a pl- an affordable place to live just as we have here in major cities. I live in New York. It's very hard to find an affordable place to live here in New York. It's very it's the same thing in Germany as well. That's a big concern for voters. And also the fourth one was COVID. 
So all those different issues are what the Germans are voting on right now. Immigration, surprisingly, is kind of at the bottom. And same with the European Union. So it's interesting to note that despite immigration playing such a pivotal role in shaping German politics throughout the last few years of Merkel's time as chancellor, it really wasn't one of the top issues in this particular election. It also interested me to learn that more than half of eligible voters in Germany are over age 50. Now, that's not all that different from the United States. The median age of our electorate is in the early 40s, but the average voter here is also over 50. And that changes the tenor of an election when you're talking about what timeline are people thinking about. Older Germans, they like the status quo. They like the stability. They like Germany having a leadership role in some capacity, not leading on everything, but having some type of leadership role. Um, And they enjoy the way that Germany is structured as a society. For younger Germans, they're not thrilled with the status quo. They you know, want more socially liberal policies. Merkel did vote against gay marriage. They want more action on climate change. They want to, they want higher wages. They want to be able to afford where they live. So there's that there too, is there, there is that demographic break between older and younger Germans. You know, coming from this American perspective, it's easy to imagine like all these parties, all these issues crowded with big personality and egos because our politics feels so driven by that these days. But this is an area where our political landscape and preference is very different from the Germans. And what I think so interesting is when you look back at Merkel's legacy, you know, it's hard. Did she did she create this desire for stability and sort of a policy-driven politics? Was it always there and she was just uniquely suited to meet it? Whatever the Whatever the cause, what you definitely see is that Germans want that stability. Basically, they like it nice and boring, as Ali told us. It's so funny. The other day, the Berlin borough chief of the New York Times put out an article saying basically that this election's boring for the Germans, that all the leaders are boring. There's no charisma. But to be honest with you, I think that's kind of how Germans like it. I think that the Germans are people, look at Angela Merkel, for example. She's just there to govern. And like she wears the same jacket with everywhere she goes in just different colors. Like she's not there to like get attention or to stir up controversy. She's just there to govern. So I think when it comes to coalition government, governing and did the decision about whether to go into the opposition for a lot of parties it's really just a matter of what they think is going to be most beneficial for their parties and like for their party itself and then what is going to get them the things that they want to accomplish personality is not a huge thing in germany and that's what's interesting about the populist parties there is that they're also they're not these charismatic outrageous people like Donald Trump and Boris Johnson. They're there. They complain about the issues that they want to complain about. They pick up the same narratives that are going throughout, you know, the the far right throughout the world. I mean, when I was doing my thesis work, I collected over a thousand Facebook posts for the far right in Germany. And it was like, I felt like I was watching Fox News in German. Like everything that, every narrative about every issue here in the U.S. that was controversial was, was being applied to the same, you know, in the same way in Germany as well. So. They do tend to be populist in the sense where they, like, say things where you're just like, oh, my God, like, that's not politically correct, you know, but they're still not as outrageous and actively trying to shake things up from a rhetoric perspective like populists elsewhere. 
So we talked to Allie before the election actually took place on Sunday. Votes are still being counted as we're recording, but it looks like Olaf Scholz's center-left SPD will have a plurality of the parliament, necessitating the formation of a coalition government. Here is what Allie told us about Scholz. Scholz, who is the, is the candidate for the Social Democrats, is currently the vice chancellor and the finance minister. So he's very involved with the current coalition government. So the CDU is trying to paint him as being extreme because he has said that he would not rule out governing with the left. So now they're trying to make everyone afraid that the communists are coming back and, and whatnot. But I mean, he's he's been in the government for a while now. And if you look at the at the SPD's platform, too, it's very similar to what's going on now. They have some more social, socially liberal policies when it comes to taxation and when it comes to things like LGBTQ plus rights. They're definitely more to the left than what's happening now. But he's kind of a he he's presenting himself as the natural successor to Merkel because he's been in her government. You know, so there's not I don't think even if he wins, I don't think it's going to be a huge difference to what's going on now. You know, it's so interesting on our Friday episode, we talked about how every parliamentary system is different and unique. And for Germany, what they did on Sunday is take two votes, right? So the first are sort of equivalent to our congressional races in the United States. So they voted for an individual member of parliament from one's district. But then separately, they also voted for a political party. And it doesn't have to be the same party of the representative they picked in the first question, which I think is so fascinating. So the directly elected representatives make up about half of the Bundestag, which is their legislative branch, and the parties are allocated proportional representation from question two to constitute the other half. And parties must receive at least 5% of that vote to qualify for the proportional representation. And so when you look at these results, again, as we're recording, the SPD got about 25.7%. The Christian Democratic Union, which is Markle's party, got 24.1%. So that's like less than 50 percent. And so you're seeing these smaller parties, the Green Party, the Free Democratic Party, they're going to be steering a lot of this conversation because either party, like let's just say the mail-in ballots come in and Merkel's party surges, either way, it's not going to be enough. And they're going to need these other smaller parties to form a coalition government. And I think when you look at that proportional representation and the way it's divided, That's going to be really interesting. It's going to be really interesting. That system bakes in that you're going to have this really substantive conversation, right? They're separating out voting for a candidate from voting for a party. And I just think that is such an interesting way to constitute your legislative branch. Mm -hmm. It's also interesting to look at these numbers and realize, okay, about 50 percent of the German population voted for a pretty moderate agenda. That's what you see with the CDU and the SPD. And then the rest of it breaks down along all these different lines. And I think that's pretty representative of the U.S. population right now, too. We just don't get to see it that way. And seeing it that way has some real value. I'm excited to see how this government comes together. I'm also interested to see how long Merkel is going to have to hang around in this caretaker role. Listen, that's what I I said on the news brief. When you're competent, this is what always happens with your retirement. People are like, oh, wait. Wait, wait. No, not not yet. Sorry, we just need you a few more minutes. We need you to help with just a little bit more. Merkel. So, yeah, it will be interesting to see how long this process takes. 
I saw the leader of the SPD saying, like, we're going to get it done by the end of the year. So we'll see. Everybody will be watching, not just Germany, not just Europe, but the entire world as Merkel's era comes to the end and Germany launches into a, a new era of politics. I hope you guys don't mind to time travel back with me about a year. I was in the process of resigning myself to the idea that part of middle age for me might mean that my hair was going to slowly turn to straw and fall out of my head. Drama aside, we all know that your hair and skin can sway your mood and impact your day in ways you can't underestimate. I have tried other custom beauty products and just found that they kind of made my hair worse. But ever since I switched to a custom hair routine with pros, I've noticed so many benefits. Healthier hair, yes, but beyond that too. I feel like I don't have to blow dry my hair anymore in order for it to look good because it's stronger, fuller, softer, and just looks nicer. Pros is made for people, not hair and skin types. Personalization is rooted in everything they do from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. My custom shampoo and conditioner, for example, were formulated to improve the smoothness and volume of my hair. And I really see after months of using my custom formula and tweaking it with the review and refine tool for this season that I have nice looking hair all year long. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash pantsuit. So go get your free consultation, then 50% off at pros.com slash pantsuit. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash pantsuit. you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Traditionally, the advice would be pick one. But thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ugh, ugh, out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka bra plum. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. That's code PODCAST15. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Beth, what's on your mind outside politics? Last Friday, I did another Dear Beth Day on Instagram. And one person wrote to say that a very close person in her life discovered that her husband had had an affair. 
And she was asking, how can I be supportive of this person? And I responded in the 30, 45 seconds that Instagram gives you that I thought, logistically, she needs to just show up and say, what do you need? Can I make meals for you? Can I take care of the kids? Can I clean your house? Just what do you need? And emotionally, she needs to let this person lead because the last thing someone in a situation like this needs is to have to manage everybody else's feelings about what's happened to her. Her feelings are the center of it. Lots of comments about that, especially from people who have lived this reality and, Mm -hmm. and said, I'm the person who has been cheated on. Thank you for saying this, because I did have to carry everybody else's stuff, even as I was working through my own. And Emily, who's one of our executive producers, said this might be a good time to talk about ring theory, which has been around for a while. There's a 2013 op-ed from the Los Angeles Times. It was written by Susan Silk and Barry Goldman, and it was about Susan's experience with breast cancer and how many people told her a version of, well, your breast cancer is not just about you. Bless. And so they said, let's talk about a a framework for understanding what to do when someone's in crisis, and that developed ring theory. And the idea is the person who's in the crisis is is the center circle, and you draw a ring around that center circle of the people closest to them, a partner, a parent, a child, and then the next ring is a little further out, trusted friends, and then out goes colleagues and and extended family Mm -hmm. members and on and on, and you just keep going circles around. And the idea is that as you go in toward that center circle, you are providing comfort only. And if you need to process your own feelings, you dump out. So it's comfort in, dump out. And I think that is so helpful. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really, really a good way to think about it In, in theory. I think in practice, it's so hard. It's so hard because I think you want to provide comfort to the person consciously, but subconsciously and sometimes even consciously, you need comfort yourself. Mm -hmm. And it's just really hard to disentangle those. So I think any framework that helps us become more aware of the way those two things work in concert and, and start to detangle them is incredibly helpful. I do like that it recognizes, of course, that's a tragedy for other people. Of course, it's a stressful Mm -hmm. scenario for other people. And they are allowed to process that. They're just not allowed to process closer to the crisis. They have to process further away. Well, you know what I think happens? What I think happens is people have an experience that they feel is equivalent. And maybe it is directly equivalent. Maybe you were cheated on. Maybe you've had a miscarriage. Maybe you've had cancer. And so they put themselves in the ring with you. This is what, and this, maybe we need an addendum to the ring theory, which is only one person in the ring at a time. Maybe that's, that's what happens a lot, I think. I think that's exactly it. You know, the framework is really helpful, but another valuable piece of this op-ed, which we'll link in the show notes so you can read, is some definition around what comfort looks like. Because Mm -hmm. comfort usually does not look like advice. And comfort usually doesn't look like, let me tell you my story so that you can relate to it or let's be in the ring together. That's not what comfort is. I think comfort is a better word than empathy, really, for talking about what people need. I, I want you to just do what you can to take care of me right now, not to challenge me, not to sit in it with me, not to pull me out of it even, to just care for me where I am today. I'm just grateful that 
there has been increased conversation around this at all. I think I want to take a moment to say this is hard. And we've made a lot of progress as a human race on this. There's additional books written. There's, you know, so many great conversations around what does it mean to be there for somebody in crisis? And I think any addition to that conversation, any moment where we can bring some consciousness to how we react in these moments, how other people react in these moments, I think gives all of us the ability to give some more grace to ourselves and to others where we've messed up, give some more grace to ourselves and others as we move forward and try to do better. Thank you so much for joining us today here at Pantsuit Politics, where we always try to give grace. Don't forget, before we leave, that our fall box for the Extra Credit Book Club is available now. So make sure you subscribe by October 1st so you don't miss out on this great box. And the link to subscribe is in our show notes. As always, we will be back with you again on Friday. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Megan Hart and Maggie Pinton are our community engagement managers. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Linda Daniel. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Helen Handley. Tiffany Hassler. Barry Kaufman. Molly Kors. The Creeps! Lori Ladau. Lily McClure. David McWilliams. Jared Minson. Emily Neasley. Danny Osmond. The Hessians! Tawny Peterson. Tracy Putoff. Sarah Ralph. Jeremy Sequoia. Karen True. Amy Whited. Emily Holliday. Katie Steigers. Melinda Johnston. Joshua Allen. Morgan McHugh. Nicole Berkless. Paula Bremer. And Tim Miller. Oof, I have like motion sickness from all the stopping and starting and that. I'm sorry. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to move out of my house with these fruit flies. I just, I'm going to have to leave. There were seven major political mm-hmm. parties vying for power. You okay? Breakdown of the seven major political parties. Okay. Blah, hey. blah. Hi, Ellen. Sorry you feel bad. Sarah says hi and she's sorry that you feel bad. You want to wave to her? Okay.